Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 37 by the King's Hand. I'm Scatty, and as always, Brooke and Matt are joining me. Hello. Shalom. And tonight we'll be covering A Storm of Swords. I'm just going to blow right by it, Matt. <laughs> Catelyn 3, Jamie 3, Arya 4, and Danny 2. Oh, and Bran 2 also. That's chapters 20 through 24 of A Storm of Swords according to a wiki of ice and fire. Uh, we are spoiler-free just like always until the very end of the podcast. Uh, we have a special segment then called Davos After Dark in which uh, we talk about anything and everything from all books, all reference material, anything we choose. Also, if you want to contact us, reach out to uh, you know re- uh, suggest some discussion topics or tell us we missed something or congratulate us on being awesome, davosfingers.com. Uh, email at wearedavosfingers at gmail.com. We are on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at davosfingers. And uh, we're on the iTunes, too, if you want to jump in there and leave a review. We love those. We just eat them up, uh, as Matt indicated on Twitter today. We love you guys. Uh, also, speaking of Twitter, real quick, the scad got called out, uh, spoiled something in the in the opener of, of the last cast. I apologize for that. We are pretty good about not spoiling in the chapter summary times, but... Uh, we got going when talking about Gurm's letter, and uh, Scat, Scat let, let something out of the bag, so I apologize really? for that. We'll try to oh, be... I don't want you to repeat it. I'm not going to. be yeah. double spoiling, but now I'm like, oh, what is it? Hey guys, this is Brooke saying, here is where we yacked about the spoiler for a while, then we berated Scad for spoiling everyone for a while, and then we didn't transition back into the podcast in any sort of thoughtful way. So without further ado, here's the rest of the podcast. No real news and notes, uh, other than we had uh, two tragic losses this week uh, in in David Bowie and Alan Rickman. Uh, we're recording the day after Alan Rickman passed. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, and they come in threes, so someone's next. Yeah, don't say it. <laughs> it's yeah. George. It's George. We'll never know the end. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. has no money grubbing progeny to uh, sell all of his unfinished books. So, rest in peace, Alan to Rickman. Metatron. Yeah, to Metatron, yeah. Uh, to the Sheriff of Nottingham, to uh, Hans Gruber, many, many good characters. Uh, and also D- uh, David Bowie, who I wasn't a huge fan of his music, but a, a bigger fan of his person. He was, um, he he was always someone that stood up for alternative lifestyles. And, and differences not mattering and um, being an individual and being unique. And uh, so I respect that a lot. I was never a huge, huge fan of his music, but yeah, yeah. he was amazing. He was like the Madonna of Madonna. <laughs> it's one of those things I've told Scat about before that I may not love the music that they make, but I recognize the influence they've had on music and on every, and on culture in general. And uh, Bowie's one of those for me. Not a fan of his music hardly at all, but man, mad respect for the talent he had, for the unique perspective on things that he brought. So. All right, uh, Brooke, your episode. Oh man, that's it? I, I, yeah. Nothing to plug? Do you have anyone else that died? <laughs> no, no rants? I, I, yeah, can... I was going to say, Scad, you've got, didn't your sister have anything you need to plug? <laughs> Any shows you're in? My sister does, did have some major news come out today. I think it's news I've shared with you guys before. Uh, she's writing A-Force, which um, yes. A-Force is a who's who of Marvel female superheroes. She-Hulk, Captain Marvel, Dazzler, 
it's basically kind of a an all-star team of female superheroes um and uh she's taking over at issue five so it recently got a reboot with with uh that huge marvel event they did over the summer um this name is uh, secret wars and um so yeah she's taking that book over um full time and it's huge i mean you know again she gets to write some of the biggest character biggest characters at marvel so it's pretty exciting for her yeah it's very cool you sound really supportive and not at all jealous um that was sarcasm uh- well, he's in Davos' fingers, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... When, I don't look, know what when, he's got to be jealous of. When you realize that you're in a family and one sibling has chosen to hog all of the talent, yeah, you know, it gets to you a little bit. Not all of it. You, you, you yeah, got a I, I got a smidgen. Yeah. A little, a little dash. Uh, no, I'm not jealous at all. I'm, I'm her biggest fan, yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Oh, we know. Yeah. Okay. So Sorry. thanks for thanks for letting me plug, and I realized that was sarcasm, but I took hold of it and ran. So <laughs> you did. You you better you better not do it again. I'm warning you. I'll run. Kudos to you, buddy. Scad, take us on to Catlin. The words will cut you like Valyrian steel to a head. She can't love Jon Snow, but she's sure to let you know where she stands. A devoted mother who married the brother of a dead fiancé. She's vengeful and hateful, loving and faithful. She's Catelyn, Catelyn Stark. Two dead boys are laid down in front of Cat and Rob. Lannister captives Tion Frey and Willem Lannister. Murdered by a small party of Karstarks. Cat is reminded of Bran and Rickon as she looks down at the bodies, then thinks of Sansa and wonders what the Lannisters will undeniably do when they hear this news of their slain kin. Rob has the murderers brought in. There are five of them left, uh, including Rickard himself. There's three already dead or dying. Uh, Rob names Rickard a murderer and a traitor, but Rickard shows no remorse. He names it vengeance, not murder. And through it all, Cat feels responsible as this is all a result of her freeing jamie there's a lot of other stuff people that could maybe feel responsible but she certainly feels a part of it it should be noted that Karstark he kind of makes some good points uh, how can it be treason to kill your enemies but not to free them as he looks <laughs> hard at catelyn but he makes these points in such a way as to make it a clear challenge to rob's authority even reminding him how he lost the north to the ironborn the Great John is about to reward Karstark for his insolence when in comes the Blackfish, Brendan Tolley. That's Cat's uh, uncle. He's got some news. It doesn't look good. Rob issues a command to have all seven of the Karstark men, save Rickard himself, hung before taking a smaller number in to hear what Brendan Tolley has to say. The Blackfish reports that all the Karstarks have left the camp, most seeking Jamie and the reward for finding him. What reward, you might be asking? It apparently Rickard Karstark has promised the hand of his daughter to the one that can retrieve the Kingslayer and bring him back. So basically, around 300 Karstarks on horses have fled the camp under the cover of darkness um, and are now all in search of the Kingslayer. And Cat's just like, no, he needs to make it to King's Landing. So 
Rob is just despairing as he considers what he, what must be done here. They play at keeping Karstark alive to appease the Karstark foot. So they split the Karstark mounted uh, force and the Karstark foot. The Karstark foot stayed with Bolton uh, and lost that battle at the Green Fork uh, against Tywin so, so long ago. And they know that the Karstark foot won't be happy if they murder Rickard. So they're playing with maybe keeping him alive, but Rob knows in his gut that he owes the fathers of these children justice. And he delivers said justice, executing Rickard himself, just as Ned taught him in front of the godswood. Later that day, Jane visits Kat, pleading for her advice. After the execution, Rob has been distant, ignoring food and her attentions. He's in a daze, he's writing letters and studying maps, but he's basically not responding to her at all. Kat gives some wonderful advice, some of the best advice I think she's ever given. Be patient. He will come back and be there for him when he does. Oh yeah, she also nonchalantly pleads for Jane to give up the nookie. Go mom. <laughs> Jane promises that she and Rob are actually doing everything they can to get Robin air, trying sometimes several times a day, despite the very palpable risk of chafing. They also pray for success and drink a special fertility concoction to aid in the process. Kat is pleased by all of this, and she says she'll add her own prayers for good luck, and inwardly notes Jane's quality birthing hips. And that's all she wrote. Oh yeah. <laughs> seriously, seriously, that's that's how the chapter ends. Right. She's got good hips. Good hips. Yep. Kind of got to wonder if Rob's ignoring her not because of his angstiness, but uh <laughs> because she reminds him of all of the other foolish mistakes and Ooh. trials yeah. and tribulations that they've had. Yeah, it's a good point. Agree. Yeah, while not directly related to the car starkness. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's certainly a reminder of like, uh, this stew wouldn't be nearly Things so hot. Things aren't going if, how they should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this stew wouldn't be nearly so hot. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> There's some other comparisons we can make. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. I'd love to hear them. <laughs> this, this plumbing wouldn't be as destroyed as it, <laughs> as it could be. <laughs> but, oh, uh, you don't disappoint I don't know Brooke. what that means. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, we talked about how hot the stew's getting. One of the things I wanted to just kind of discuss is just a quick review of Rob's military situation. I mean, briefly, he's fucked. Militarily. Like, he's kind of... He's got people deserting him. He's maybe lost the phrase after this thing that you, you mentioned with the, the Jane-ness and the phrase probably being uh, insulted and not too supportive. Um, he's, you know, maybe going to lose the Karstark foot. We heard in Tywin's chapter, or Tyrion's chapter last episode about the battle at Duskendale in which there were heavy losses and, and cap- captures. Um, so... He's got Lannisters to his east. He has Lysa Aaron to his west, who's just ignoring this whole thing, like an ostrich in the head in the sand. To the north, he has the undecided, potentially treacherous, definitely insulted phrase. Um, and to the south, he's got Highgarden smelling their own roses. Um, with with uh, with Tywin as well. So also some Lannisters down at Casterly Rock. Yeah. That's a, rebooting that's a good, their forces, right? That's a good breakdown, but I think you got your east and west mixed up. Yeah, Liza. Aaron oh, I did. Sorry, north, I meant west. North, I meant uh, 
East, right? Well, I meant West. West for the Lannisters is what I meant. He's got Lannisters to the West. was the first thing I said. I said East. I meant West. And, yeah, Lysa to the East. Sorry. It helps me to remember because I kind of think of, like, Castle Rock and the rest of the Lannister lands is California because they're all blonde and yeah, <laughs> and a little bit Hollywoodish. Good I call. like that. Yeah, so he's yeah, things are grim. Yeah, he's not in a good place. Yeah, militarily. Would would you guys have uh, lopped off Rickard's head there to? Uh, that guy scares the shit out of me, so I probably would have run from him. <laughs> Send a message. I don't know. Hmm. It sounds like a like a combination of sending a message, of maintaining honor, of the fact that Ned Stark has drilled into you since you were in swaddling cloths that you're responsible for all men's actions as their leader. Yeah, I think all of that. I think the honor thing is the big one. Ned taught yeah. him for sure that you have to keep the honor, and I, I think that's the main part of it. Well, and if he uh, if he doesn't, right? He's kind of giving the power to his liege lords right he's yeah. saying that he can he can be swayed a little bit by his liege lords and that they can kind of do what they want and get away with it and that kind of undercuts his authority uh it's also worrisome that like you mentioned scad we've had this battle at duskendale where prisoners were taken and uh you know edmure he said something stupid of don't tell just don't tell the Lannisters that they're dead just keep it quiet keep it on the lowdown but um, and, and I certainly think that's the wrong choice but to his point a little bit if word of this gets out that could mean like open hunting season on any northern prisoners that are out there you know because this problem will just perpetuate itself oh you killed our guys so we're going to kill your guys and all of a sudden northern prisoners are getting killed in their jail cells so it's a it's a serious problem and rob you know it was probably the right choice as yeah as scary as the consequences were of losing all these car starks and stuff um you know he's got this he's he's had to do something yeah and his sister might be in the back of his mind as well which is what cat fears right this i think that's a big reason yeah. yeah sansa's there and who knows if she becomes the next target of revenge yeah i, I will say though i think it was sorry go ahead just regarding the killing of, of the Car Starks, best job ever has to be headman to the Starks. Because, <laughs> like, you don't ever do any... All you do is carry the weapon there. And then you just kind of hang out until they come take it from you. Critique uh, his three-chopping technique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hold it thus, Saya. I, I, I do think that the beheading was a little extreme because... Maybe if if Rob was a little more not cunning but a little more Boltonish, I guess hmm. he would have kept Rickard like chained and in some sort of like Princess Leia costume <laughs> to his to his throne. Maybe 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 chained to Grey Wind or something like that to sh- set an example. And also by not killing him then the Karstarks are still bound to him because he kind of right. has Rickard as a hostage, but he still, like, like humiliated him and cowed him and has no power, and so that takes care of, um, you know, exerting his authority over his liege lords, as you mentioned, Matt. Yeah, it's just how the Lannisters, how it... the Lannisters going to take that, which yeah, I... it, you could, well, you could, you could you be devious use... and use letters and say, I'm going to keep them for now. Y- yeah. When 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 we meet again, you can have them. Yeah. You could say that or something. 
They might actually yeah, I, like he he's just a piece that could have been used over and over again. Yeah. And uh So you're saying that by keeping him alive it kind of keeps him as a hostage to ensure the Karstark army's good behavior. Yeah, maybe even somehow try to regroup the ones that Rickard already set free with the promise of his daughter's maidenhead. Oh my mm-hmm. god. Wonder how she feels about that. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to get a nice strong man for a husband. That's all you need in this world. Mm. This this world, not our world. Mm. Please note what I said. Mm. The thing I worry about with them with keeping him alive is that he, yeah, he probably would have kept the Karstark army's allegiance, but it wouldn't be, it would just be allegiance in name only. And I'm sure there would be some scheming behind their backs, Rob's back and stuff. And it would, I don't know if it would just sow greater discord in the army to the point that, you know, trouble breaks out and Rickard is wrapping his chain around Rob's neck and squeezing, squeezing, squeezing <laughs> like Jabba. And Rob's tongue is lolling about. <laughs> Thanks for describing that scene by scene. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, yeah, there's, uh, he definitely would have it's had to, spot. like, it, he he couldn't have, like, half-assed that. He would have had to full-ass keeping Rickard as a hostage and using him as an example, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he couldn't have let Rickard persuade him into, you know, cutting a new deal or... Yeah, any type of compromise. Yeah, any sort of leniency, nothing like that. Like, he would have... He would have had to be super hard-ass, probably as hard-ass as he was when he actually killed Brickard. So equal amounts of effort, just different amounts of time on that handle and that whole Rickard situation. I learned a lesson. Never half-ass two things. Whole-ass one thing. I, I get what you're saying. Strategically, it might have been better. I respect what he did. He kind of... You know you're, you know you, those situations where you're like, you're put in a difficult position... And one way's clearly easier, and you just kind of like you you make excuses and reasons to make that the better choice because it's going to be easier. I think he I think he did the hard one. You know, he took the hard one and he he did it, and I, I respect him for it. Agreed. I agree. One uh, one last thing, just cats talk with Jane. Not not a whole lot there. Just um. It was kind of interesting. I, I remember the first time I read these chapters, I didn't expect to see this. I didn't, I didn't expect to get to know Jane much through Cat's eyes, but I, I kind of liked this scene. You get to see a little bit of her, and Jane seems like a little sweetie, doesn't she? She does, and it was nice to see that moment between the two of them. I, like you said, I wasn't expecting it either. And uh, it, that was probably their first real moment alone together, right? Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen one other, otherwise, but yeah, it seems like it. It seemed like to her that it was. I, th- uh, I think she definitely sees some of some of herself in Jane, at least in the situation, like similar situations, right? She mentions being married to the North and kind of what that means, and these are hard men and that kind of thing. And now that you mention it, it's a little odd that Catelyn, as like the woman in the position of power in their relationship, not power, but you know, sort of like the respect hierarchy, hasn't reached out to Jane before this. And like mm-hmm. tried to spend time with her and her mother or anything like that. Yeah, she's still in mourning and stuff. But you would have thought that Catelyn would have considered it her responsibility to integrate Jane a little more. Yeah, family duty honor, right? Um, yeah, she's part of the family now. You, you'd think she would have, especially having lost some of hers. You know, try to embrace some of that new family. 
I agree. Yeah. Mm. I, I, yeah. In theory, I agree. When I put myself in cat shoes a little bit, you know, not to mention her kids and everything that she's in mourning for, but also her dad, who I think is foremost on her mind. And I think she's still just worrying about Rob's situation a lot. No matter what kind of person Jane is, she's still going to worry about about all of this. So, but yeah, in theory, I agree with you. Yeah, I shirk that responsibility too. Jane seems like, well, very sweet, pretty difficult to carry a conversation with. <laughs> well, yeah, and just the fact that she's that constant reminder of mm-hmm. the trouble that they're in. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. that's yeah. tough. That's tough. And no matter how much you like somebody, if you're in a predicament like that, they're gonna remind you of it. Just their presence is gonna remind you of it. Yeah. Also, from Jane's and- perspective, she has her whole family with her. So it's not like right. she's going to go seek out Kat. She'll go talk to her own mom. And uh, and remembering that Rob, in Catelyn's eyes, Rob is all she's got left. Rob is all she's got left. Maybe Sansa, but yeah, that Rob is all she's fast got. for, isn't it? All right. You guys ready to move on? Yeah. All right. Uh, take us on to Jamie Max. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wild to get cheating at the palm of his hand? Jamie Lannister got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet, so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead, it doesn't matter, reason, bottom line is sister treason. At deepest side, could there be something on if you can see a evil? Could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie. Said Jamie Lannister. Uh, uh, uh. Our motley crew of Brienne, Cleos Frey, and the still chained up Jamie Lannister continue their jaunt through the Riverlands, slowly making their way to King's Landing through a swath of destruction. Burned out husks of homes, desecrated seps, and corpses, lots of corpses, have seemingly become part of the landscape. So as they're traveling, they're suddenly ambushed by a small group of archers who, taking cover behind a low wall, begin raining down arrows on the party. So almost as if by instinct, Jamie turns his old horse and charges straight at him, knowing that unsupported archers will almost always break ranks and run if attacked. Brienne follows suit, even though she's already been hit by two arrows. Go Brienne. And the two succeed in chasing off the archers. True to Jamie's instincts. Uh, the moment is not without casualty, though. Cleos's horse, taking an arrow in the rump, threw Cleos from his saddle where his leg was entangled and dragged Cleos for a distance long enough to kill him. Uh, Jamie talks about how his head was, Cleos's head was mushy to the touch after, which was kind of gross. So let's pause for a moment of silence for Cleos. Okay, that's about all Jamie gives him as well, as he starts going over Cleos's body, claiming he wants new clothes. He's sick of the rags he's been in. Uh, the ever-wary Brienne objects, and those objections prove to be sound, as Jamie slyly rips Cleos's longsword from its scabbard and, in chains and all, goes at Brienne. And so begins a sword fight that I would love to witness. Jamie seems to have the upper hand at first. But remember, of course, that he has quite the opinion of himself, and we are reading this from his POV. And as the fight goes on, Brienne's strength and endurance, compared to Jamie's rustiness after a long imprisonment, seem to win out. And Jamie realizes that she is actually stronger than he is. Uh, he's not accustomed to admitting things like that. 
Uh, the battle comes to a climax in a brook as Brienne overcomes Jamie, straddles him, and encourages him to yield as she pushes his face into the water, threatening to drown him. She only stops after Jamie retorts that by killing him, she'd become an oathbreaker, just like he was. Oh no, Brienne ain't gonna be like Jamie, and she lets him go. And then all of a sudden, the woods rang with coarse laughter. One of my favorite lines. I love how George R. R. Martin does that. I think we've talked about it in the cast. I love how he just turns the scene on a, on a dime with one sentence. And he does there. So sure enough, the dueling duo are surrounded by none other than the brave companions. Remember them? The unsightly sellsword company led by Vargo the Goat Hoat, who uh, isn't even there at this point. But somehow recognizing Sir Jamie, their HCIC that's head companion in charge, <laughs> Urswick the Faithful, which is a great name. Oh, I love that name. Urswick the Faithful reveals that they're taking the both of them, Brienne and Jamie, to Lord Vargo and then on to Roose Bolton, who they reveal that they now serve after turning cloak on the Lannisters at Hall. We all remember that scene. So after a good beating, the both wounded Jamie and Brienne are tied back to back, placed on a horse and taken to Vargo. During the interim, Jamie uh, rather, I don't know, gratuitously attempts to prepare Brienne for the inevitable, well, he considers inevitable raping she'll receive at the hands of the companions. He counsels her not to resist for her own sake and to continue, and he continues to drop hints, or wait, he encourages her to continue to drop hints as to the richness of her family in the hopes that the companions will want to keep her undead and ransom worthy. So upon arriving at Hote, uh, Jamie attempts to buy the brave companions back, reminding him of his father's exceeding riches. To that, Vargo replies that he must first send Tywin a method. And at that, they push Jamie to the ground, pull his hands out in front of him, and one of the Dothraki in the brave companions whips out a razor-sharp Arak. Uh, Jamie's initial thoughts are that they are only trying to scare him and that he won't give them the pleasure of seeing him intimidated. But alas... Here is how the chapter ends. Sunlight ran silver along the edge of the Arak as it came shivering down almost too fast to see, and Jamie screamed. The chapter ends. Screams of joy as they cut his Screams bonds. Screams of happiness. Yeah, they're they cutting his chains off. Yeah, that's probably um, it. Probably, right? We know so much about those merciful, kind, uh, brave companions that... But hey, I would have loved to see that sword fight between Brienne and Jamie, huh? That was so cool. It was great. And I, I love that Jamie is just like so the whole arrogant. Thing, just <laughs> very, very, very reluctantly admitting mm-hmm. that Brienne is better than he is. You can see it yeah. happening. He's like, I'm so, kicking her butt. Oh, yeah. ow. Ooh, shoulders hurting a little bit. A little sore there. Oh, it's doing- only because I've been in prison for forever. Yeah, he was doing pretty good for having both hands tied together. Agreed. And for being, like, weak and... Uh, Emaciated a little bit. Yeah, kind of had it, the Lannister drained out of him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that was a good fight. Well described by George. Extremely well written. Mm-hmm. And would have loved to see it. I don't, I don't see it as one of those, like, graceful Princess Bride sword fighting scenes. This was just, like, brute strength just going at each other, you know? Yeah. This was Brienne's face, and, and one of those like rictus, like like lips pulled back from her teeth, just beaten two handed on him with her sword, <laughs> just over and over again, right? Yeah. Kr, 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 kr. yeah, 
very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. I also, for all that the bloody bummers are horrible, I do enjoy that that Gurm kind of like, I don't know, shoehorned in this leftovers lunch of different cultures that we've kind of come across. Like there's Dothraki in there, Ebenese, a guy from Dorne. It's all just kind of like, here's, here's, here's where all the cultures come together in harmony. (laughs) (laughs) In the brave companions. And it's interesting to see their, the perspective of how they're viewed in Westeros, right? Like the Dothraki over in Essos where Danny is are seen as almost these regal, Top of the food chain, almost top guys, right? Eat off everyone. Yeah, and here, the fattest Dothraki he's ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> they see him like sitting on a uh, what is it like an old um, a statue of the mother, like prying his eyes her eyes out with a knife and stuff. And I just imagine this big guy just working at these eyes with a knife. And... Yeah, it's interesting to get that other perspective, that other side. Also, Gosh. interesting that uh, Jamie spoke up to um, to get Brienne. <laughs> Brienne's raping, I guess, delayed a little bit. Yeah, what do you guys think of that? His inner monologue, he's still saying, I, I still don't like her, and I would never save her life or anything. But yet his words kind of betray him, don't they? He... Mm. And they yeah, work. he's got a little moment of human decency in there. Yeah, he probably he... just doesn't want to deal with like the fallout. Maybe. I mean, uh, yeah, he doesn't really stand to gain anything from doing it. Uh, exactly. He's so like, oh, she's it, probably an ugly crier. I don't want to have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean... <laughs> That's what he's telling himself. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, not that he likes and respects her at all. Some of these mummers, he's got to be thinking he might be pretty enough to get raped if they don't start with her. So I... I I really, I don't know what he has to gain. I mean, I, I have to, ch- I have to stack it up to human decency from Jamie on this one, right? And you have to wonder: is he lying to himself? You have that moment, and then you also have the moment where he says he he admits to us, in essence, as we read his thoughts, that he intends to get Sansa back to her mother. You know, and and he says his motives aren't pure. He he says the notion of keeping faith when they all expected betrayal amused him more than he could say, <laughs> and that's why he was doing it. Which is like, oh, this, this will be funny if I do it. No one expects. That's when you know but, that him and Tyrion are related. Yeah, <laughs> I mean he's yeah he's not interested in keeping his honor for honor's sake, but he's wanting to do it to shock people, kind of like you said. But is there? I don't know, like. <sighs> Well, that's what for, I wonder. For, for, is if so I had this friend in college. His name was Pete. Pete, there's no way you listen to this. Uh, he had a drunk persona that we called Uncle Carl. That was, when he got drunk, like it was ridiculous. I mean, one time he accidentally punched my other friend's girlfriend. I mean, he Literally on accident, but did it because he was so out of control. Drunk driving, like he was just, he was, he was a true asshole of, 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 an, of a drunk. And he had, you know, he had other symptoms really causing the desire to do that. But we encourage, like, he, he, it eventually became a role that he played, right? It was like, that's what people expect of me. They expect right. me to be this larger-than-life drunk person. And so, yeah, I better get drunk tonight. And Jamie, Jamie's played this role for so long, he doesn't know how to think about this in any way but caustically. I'm not doing it for honor. That wouldn't be... I, I don't have any honor. Everyone tells me that. I have to play that role. I don't have any exactly. of that. Exactly. Yep. And so... But... I but I will. you completely. But I will also say this. 
the longer you play a role like that, eventually that just becomes who you are. Mm, and so, sure. so this is in the middle for me. This is who he is. He's an a-hole. He's not doing it for honor. He's doing it to shock people. But also, is he doing it because that's what people expect of him and he doesn't know how to be different? Maybe. It's it's a middle-of-the-road thing for me. Yeah, I think he's... he. I, I agree with you, and I'm... Oh, that that uh, comparison you used is a really good one. It fits right in line with my thinking, whether I'm right or I'm wrong. But uh, just that sense of he's almost become callous to... Or he's used his kind of humor and crassness as callous to shield him off and use as an excuse, kind of. I don't know mm. if I'm describing that well, but... Oh, you're right. He's an onion, that Jamie. <laughs> layers. Onions have layers. Layers. Sock and Susmapas for Maidenpool. Does anyone care? Do they want to know where this is happening? Yes, since right. you've looked it up. Yeah. So if you go to the God's Eye, which we've referenced before, it's the big lake right in the middle, and you head due east, Brooke, due east, <laughs> uh, from the top of the uh, God's Eye, you'll see Maidenpool on uh, a little bay called Bay of Crabs. And uh, so it's just right there, a little, you know, just a little bay port, a little city. And, uh, yeah, she's going to take the road straight down to King's Landing from there, supposedly. Duskendale Road, so. Where apparently we've had a battle, so. Apparently we have. You wonder how safe that road will be. I wonder if before all of this war, if it was profitable to, like, live on the King's Road. Or if it always invited trouble. Yeah. Like, is it like a highway where there's like a rest stop every... Mm. It's just interesting. It's, it's like the pretty much the only main thoroughfare throughout Westeros. So is it... The King's Road, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an interesting question, but you just gotta wonder, like, all these towns being plundered and stuff. Were they doing any good being there in the first place? Anyways... Uh, you guys want to move on? Yeah, just one more quick, um, just a line I loved uh, about during the sword fight. I should have brought it up when we were talking about that. One of my favorite lines I've read recently here. Time slept when swords woke. Mm-hmm. That was good. Yeah. I've never been in a sword fight, but it's kind of the same when you like really get in on a project. Yeah. And you get, like, you're kind of leaning in towards your computer screen. You're slowly going blind. <laughs> Oh, the, the the it reminded me of the scene with uh, Tyrion, the Blackwater. He kind of experienced the same thing. In fact, he said Jamie always talked about this. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. You get that kind of battle fever, and time yeah. seems to stop. And... I remember that. I think I made a terrible comparison to my soccer career <laughs> in that episode. I remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, we're moving on. Nostalgia. <laughs> Good times. Alright, so the next chapter is mine. It's Arya. Arya! On the foot! Pulse face! Sticking with the pointy end! Arya! On the foot! Pulse face! Sticking with the pointy end! So, in the last Arya chapter, her escape from Lem Lemon Cloak's merry band of kidnappers had been thwarted by Harwin. Remember, he caught her on the horse? She remains the reluctant hostage as they roam around the Midlands looking for the Brotherhood's main host, led by Beric Dondarrion. So far, they've had many creative reports of his demise, but Lem and Tom don't seem too worried, confident that the Lightning Lord is a hard man to take down, even by the likes of the mountain who rides. This frustrating lack of communication is deliberate. Beric Dondarrion doesn't broadcast his whereabouts and moves around quickly, so no man can betray him, 
and torturing any man of the Brotherhood who could be in the thousands by now is useless because nobody knows where he is. On their travels, Harwin explains how and why they're going to ransom Arya and River Run for Robin Hoodie reasons. Don't worry, it's nothing nefarious. But she is endearingly unsure if Rob would pay for her, which like broke my heart a lot. Little does she know how dearly her family has already paid. Finally, they come to a place called the High Heart reportedly sacred to the children of the forest where magic still lingers among a circle of 31 weirwood tree stumps uh, at the top of a high hill. Tom Sevenstrings tells Arya that an Andal king had cut down the trees when Westeros was first settled and the hill is haunted by the ghosts of the children who died because of the destruction. Uh, that night, Arya is awoken by a storm and overhears Tom, Lem, and Greenbeard talking with a stooped old dwarf woman by the campfire. In return for a song from Tom, she tells them what she dreams about while sleeping on the High Heart Hill. Super mysterious, um, but uh, tell me uh, this one particular dream she had doesn't sound familiar. She dreams of a shadow with a burning heart killing a golden stag. She also has other more mysterious dreams, uh, like of a man without a face waiting on a swaying bridge. On his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. And a raging river and a woman that was a fish, dead with red tears on her cheeks. But when her eyes did open, she, the uh, dwarf woman, woke from terror. Apparently this dwarf woman of high heart gave them some good counsel other than these weird dreams which... Nobody really appreciated because they set off for Acorn Hall, the seat of the Smallwoods, who are friends to the Brotherhood's cause. Lady Smallwood takes one look at Arya and has her scrubbed and dressed like a lady faster than you can say hot pie, which makes Gendry fall off his chair laughing. Lady Smallwood also gives them good news. Beric and Thoros, the Red Priest, have been through two weeks ago and she has a good idea of where they're going next. She also gives them some crappy news. She's been harassed by more Northmen looking for Jamie Lannister. The second report they've had of wolves making as much trouble as the lions they've been chasing since Ned sent Lord Beric out on his quest. So Arya asks what Northmen they were, and it's confirmed that they were Karstarks. Harwin finally kicks her out of the dining hall where they're all gossiping, and Arya and Gendry check out the forge at Acorn Hall currently unused, but Gendry's not impressed. Here we find out from Gendry that uh, Thoros of Myr probably won't remember Gendry, but he used to come to Gendry's forge in King's Landing all the time to get new swords for his tourney fights where he would coat the sword in wildfire and set fire to, like, other people in the tournament, I guess. Also Ironborn during the Rebellion. Uh, he's a pretty formidable guy. Got along really well with Robert because they both love fighting and drinking. Anyways, it, uh, Arya's and Gendry's little chat devolves into a wrestling match. Arya ruins the dress that Lady Smallwood had dressed her in. But don't worry, Lady Smallwood has a whole closet full of dresses for Arya, which Arya is not too pleased about. But uh, Lady Smallwood makes amends the next morning by giving her a set of riding clothes that were originally Lady Smallwood's seven-year-old sons who had died. And Arya thanks her and says that she's sorry. And it's really sweet. And that's the end of the chapter. So a bit of a hodgepodge of a chapter. But uh, I have to mm -hmm. say, I really love Lady Smallwood. 
Mm-hmm. So so cool, and uh, especially her response to the Karstarks who came knocking looking for Jamie Lannister. Yeah. <laughs> like, she, uh, well, yeah. Mo- most of the lords and ladies that we get to see are, are very highborn, right? Like, yeah. excessively highborn. And you get the sense that she's, hell, I don't know, maybe she was even a commoner that married into the highborn, but she's just kind of more crude and more easygoing she may have had an affair with Tom Seven Streams wanted once upon a time. Yeah, like it's, it seems knocking up all the, the local yeah. Uh, maids. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's just a, an interesting look at you know this is how well not the other half but the the lower half of the upper half live right. It's mm-hmm. yeah, not quite one percent. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Middle upper upper yeah. Um, I feel like uh, they're putting themselves like Acorn Hill or Acorn Hall doesn't get a really good description, but it must be well fortified because them offering this much help to the Brotherhood would definitely not go unnoticed by like uh, Gregor Clegane and the Mummers. And yeah, how how they escaped unscathed is probably a, a very good question and probably involves more than just shooting people from the walls. But uh also found it interesting that she sent her daughter away to Old Town. That was a good move. Yeah, yeah. keep her safe. Yeah. It's not a it's it's kind of just a small castle. I read up on it before the cast. Um doesn't seem like it has anything too special. So either it you know it's too small to matter around it. it. Yeah, is she talks she talks in the chapter about how being insignificant can actually be a benefit, right? Mm, yeah, that's what she tells uh, Arya. Yeah, she tells Arya, and maybe they're kind of banking on that that small enough to kind of go unnoticed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, while we're speaking about Acorn Hall, I'm going to do it again. Sakansus Mappas for Acorn Hall and High Heart, <laughs> and ma- mainly actually. Because I I want everyone to see how close Arya came to River Run. Mm-hmm. So High Heart is uh, again, if easiest way is maybe just find River Run directly southeast of that. Only like a half a thumbnail is High Heart. High Heart again, about a half a thumbnail away is Acorn Hall. In the same direction, they form almost a like a straight line there, and they describe in this chapter that the ride from a high heart to acorn hall was one hard day's ride a full day so arya came before they turned south from high heart arya came one day away from mm. river run one fucking day yeah. if high heart and acorn hall are one day apart then high heart and river run are about two a day or three days apart well i think it looks about the same distance to me According according to the map in our books, so you're looking at okay, you're looking at the map book. I'm yeah, looking at the, the, book, the book Galenix map. map but yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, Either the Galenix way, map is a little close. bit different. I have seen a couple different maps, but yeah, um, yeah. In the Galenix map, Acorn Hall is actually southwest of High Heart, just barely, I think. Um, and they're a little bit closer together. Yeah, that's true. I was going with the book map. Uh, so just kind of, you know, she got really close. I don't know if she knew how close she was, but she was close. <laughs> I don't yeah. think she had any idea. Almost yeah. as frustrating as when they uh, they almost took the skiff that um, yeah. Brienne had had sold at mm. the end. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It was like another day away. Well, Brooke, you mentioned the saddest thing being that uh, she wasn't sure Rob would pay for her. I thought the saddest part was that she didn't think her mother. She wasn't sure whether her mother would want her or not. Mm. After all the things she'd done, broke yeah. my broke my little heart. Well, it's just, it's just a reminder that she's 10, 
right? Like, well, she's almost one, one in ten. Yeah, Easy. almost Easy. eleven. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, at one point when Lady Smallwood was dressing her up, she's like, "Oh, you look like a little lady," and mm-hmm. Arya in her head is like, "I'm not a lady. I'm a wolf." At the same time, she has these massive insecurities. Yeah, right. And and guilt about for sure all the people that she's killed. It's interesting. Yeah, it's very it is childlike, but also it's it's also mature that she has uh, consequence for her actions. Hmm. And she recognizes the consequences. Yeah. And... Gendry and Arya yeah. fighting in the smithy. <laughs> just wrestling. Just I think wrestling. It's just, it's just kids being kids and Gendry being slightly inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Gendry, Gendry. <laughs> Maybe it's time to stop. Yeah. Go, go play with kids your own age. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Scad, you brought it up. Do you have some other thoughts about that? Uh... That ship? No. Is that ship sail in the land of Scad? No way. No. I think it's creepy. Yeah, because he's uh, about fifteen right now. Fourteen or fifteen? I think he's fifteen or sixteen. Well, he's he's supposed to be virtually the same age as Rob, and I think Rob is sixteen now, isn't he? He was born in two eighty four, if I'm not mistaken. I think Gendry was born in two eighty three. Wasn't he? No, I'm saying Gendry was two eighty four. Oh, okay. Yeah, Uh, you're right. I think Rob was two eighty three. Rob was two eighty three. Yeah. According to Wiki, it's 284, and we're in 299 right now. Right. So, yeah, 15-ish, and Arya's 10 or 11. Yeah. So, 10. So, yeah, it's a little weird right now. You know, I was thinking about it. Five years doesn't mean much to adults, really. Yeah. Never about 30-ish, you know? Five years doesn't mean much. But when you're 10 and 15, that still seems like a lot. It's weird how ages closer ages seem further apart the younger you are you know mm-hmm. like a like a six-month-old compared to a one-year-old that seems like a really big distance apart in age and a 10-year-old than a 15-year-old seems really big but like 30 and 35 doesn't seem that bad you know mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. damn right it doesn't i've got <laughs> i've got some good friends uh one of them listens to this cast hey dave uh he um He's got uh, he's got a, a big gap between he and his wife, and they're happy as can be. What kind of gap? Tell us. Oh, Dave, what is it? I think it's fourteen years. Oh. Thirteen, thirteen, maybe. That's a lot. Nice. That's a lot of not connecting on movies and music. Uh, no, they they're <laughs> that's the thing. They're like they're great at that stuff. That's yeah. My uh, my grandma and grandpa are twenty years apart. <gasps> so are mine. Party that's on fist so bump. Crazy. My yeah, my Shelty's oh, yeah. That's a weird family story. I won't I won't tell it. <laughs> maybe maybe, an, maybe another time. Yeah, I've got like we've got this because my grandpa had three kids with the first wife, my other grandma, and then they got divorced, and then he married this younger lady, who I also consider my grandma, and he started over, and they had three more kids, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. And so. So, like, we've got this cast of cousins that are, like, my age. They're in their 30s and 20s and stuff. And then we've got this cast of cousins. I've got cousins that are as old as my kids. <laughs> so it's kind of weird, but... That's crazy. Anyways, that's um, a tangent. Yeah, well, for the optics of it all and the, the big age difference, and, and for all, oh, we're making fun of Gendry and shaming him, I don't think there was anything going on there. I think yeah. they, were just, they were just kids, and he probably still thinks of her as airy. Is airy, yeah. yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem like there's anything going on really at all. Yeah. No, it, it just felt. I, I, I don't know. George has this great way of writing emotions that 
it's it's the words don't say it, but it just made me feel it somehow. A little it made me feel a little creepy. I don't know. I think he does that with words very well. It's like subtext somehow. He does know how to make you feel. Somehow. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, those emotions just... for our cold black yeah. hearts. Yeah. You, you, don't, you don't just read his words. He somehow helps you feel them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't sure. know if it's word choice or what, but he does it. Right. <gasps> okay, so we're we're all in agreement. Gendry isn't a pervert yet. Now. Oh, okay. He's a Baratheon, so give him a minute; he'll get there. Yeah, yeah, it's no, in of his course. Blood. Yeah, no, he's he's got the thirst. He's well on his way to becoming a alcoholic and all that good stuff. So. Careful, right. you're striding very close to the line. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I like to do. Well, this was this was child's play compared to the next chapter. Of oh my inappropriateness. Or, or appropriateness. <laughs> I mean, depending on how you're feeling. Matt, yeah. you want to take us on to Danny? Silver hair and purple eyes always on the go. Kicking it with the dragon kids and Jorah the Andal. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be Tyrion. Look out, Wisterosa comes the nearest Targaryen. So, we find Danny standing in the blisteringly dry heat of the city of Astapor. It's a slaver city where the chunky slaver Krasnis Mo Naklaz, that's how I'm choosing to pronounce it, hashtag say it how we want, is giving her a little demonstration of 1,000 unsullied. Now, these are slaves who are raised almost from birth to be unflappable, fearless, and above all, obedient soldiers. Oh, yeah, and they're eunuchs as well. I, um adding that much more evidence to Krasnus' claim that they won't loot, plunder, rape, or otherwise fall victim to the passions of men. Uh, their training is both grueling and gruesome. Uh, only one in three even survives it, and those that do have to slay an infant and kill a puppy that they've owned for a year before they can uh, get their final merit badge and become unsullied. I'm sure that uh, tears just fell from Brooke's face. I would have failed so hard. Yeah, you would have been dead a long time ago. So hard. <clears throat> From the beginning of their training, they drink a strange concoction that Krasnus calls the wine of courage, which apparently helps them to feel less, making them fearless in battle. Even names are denied them as they draw a small token each day with a derogatory name on it like Black Rat or Red Flea, and they keep that name for a day, then return it to the pot and draw a new name the next day. Uh, to demonstrate their unflinching obedience, Krasnus approaches one of the soldiers, this part's gross, and the soldier's standing at rigid formation in this burning heat, and Krasnus asks him for his sword, uh, which he then slowly uses to cut the nipple off the soldier. And the soldier doesn't move nor protest during this whole affair, and it's very slow and gross. Mm. Uh, in short, Krasnus brags, others may be stronger or quicker than the unsullied. Some few may even equal their skill with sword and spear and shield, but nowhere between the seas will you ever find any more obedient. Um, Danny, for her part, remains both impressed with the discipline of the soldiers, um, as well as disgusted at the brutal nature of their training. She plays it sly, though. She pretends not to be able to speak nor understand the tongue that the slaver is speaking in, choosing only to speak through Krasnus's young interpreter, Slave Girl. But alas, she understands every one of the insults being hurled at her by Krasnus and calmly seems to file them away. 
Regardless, one of the more entertaining parts of the whole chapter is reading the insults spoken by him, then the rewording of the insults by the interpreter as she relays them to Danny uh, much more uh, diplomatically. Um, anyways, Danny's accompanied by Arston Whitebeard, although notably not by Jorah, who she left with the ships, and asks his opinion. Arston is 100% against buying the Unsullied. Slavery, he says, is an abomination in the Seven Kingdoms, and there's no way she will inspire any type of loyalty from the people of Westeros if she comes charging in with an army of slaves. And while Krasnus praises their obedience, Arston suggests that sheep are obedient as well. In other words, he ain't having it, and he makes this known by irritatingly tapping his stick on the ground throughout the whole demonstration of the Unsullied. Uh, Danny tells Krasnus that she needs a little more time to consider and returns with her entourage to her ships. On the way back, she reflects on the city as well as on Jorah, who she's been avoiding being alone with ever since their bearskin on armor encounter. She admits to herself that even though she didn't necessarily enjoy his kiss, in fact, she's hecka frustrated by it, she can't deny that it kind of got her feeling a little hubba hubba -y. Um, since then, she had ended up pleasuring herself one night, and in the steamy moment had awoken Eerie, who dutifully finished her off then, and went back to sleep, as easily as if she'd just served um, Danny a snack, which I guess she kind of did. Uh, anyways, arriving back at the ship, she is in a rather foul mood as she contemplates how horrible of a place Astapor is, and seeing Jorah doesn't make her feel much better. Jorah meets her on deck, and she promptly slaps him criticizing him for ever bringing her to this vile sty. She proclaims that she wants nothing more than to leave, but nevertheless feels trapped into finding some way to buy these 8,000 unsullied. Heading below deck, uh, she attempts to find solace in her growing dragons and politely refuses Eri's offer for another trip to the realm of Coitus. Uh, eventually, as you can imagine, Jorah shows up for yet another fervent, but Khaleesi, chat. I mean, Gurm has to fulfill his quota of one Jorah, but Khaleesi per chapter, right? <laughs> uh, this time he counters Arston's argument against the Unsullied, saying their obedient and disciplined nature will actually be a positive thing, pointing out that they will never commit the atrocities on the people they conquer that others have. Uh, I thought of Gregor Clegane. Um, reminding her that even the Dothraki are hesitant to engage the Unsullied in open battle. Um, Danny, remembering that Jorah had once compared her to her brother Rhaegar, remarks that Rhaegar led free men into battle, not slaves. And Jorah admits that this is true, but Rhaegar was not victorious. He lost. We forget that sometimes. He ends with perhaps one of the most memorable lines of this book and maybe the whole series, and that is, Rhaegar fought valiantly, Rhaegar fought nobly, Rhaegar fought honorably, and Rhaegar died. Where else have we seen that in this story? But uh, end of chapter. We, we talked about Rob's predicament, and are we starting to see Danny? I wouldn't say her situation's dire, but we're kind of seeing for the first time Danny starting to have to really compromise. And I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like this is one of the first buying a slave army would be one of the first perhaps big compromises she's had to make on this quest to get back to Westeros. Um, and she doesn't, she doesn't like it. She's definitely feeling some anxiety over it. Would you guys agree? Yeah, it's, it's a little more noble leading your people through the desert. I mean, that's practically biblical. It's less noble when you have to purchase slaves to free slaves. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough. But uh, man, those Unsullied, they do a good job. Thorough. Yeah. I didn't mention this, but they start when they're five years old, which I thought was funny because my kids are six, so they're just coming off of five years old. And uh, I think of like, <laughs> they said, they mentioned that, uh, obviously, um, they mentioned that they like, pick the the fastest and the strongest or whatever of them and then they train them at five years old like every five-year-old's like the same it yeah <laughs> you pick the fastest and the strongest five-year-old yeah <laughs> you must not have a good pool of five-year-olds <laughs> no i'm not saying they're all weak but i'm like they're all the same like you don't see the five-year-old all cut and and ripped and everything. Um, <laughs> and then another little skinny one. They're all, I mean, some are chunkier than others or something, but they're, <laughs> if you look at 10 five-year-olds, nine of them are going to be about the same build. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Jedi have midichlorians to measure. I don't know how these guys do it. Don't say the M word. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's also... <sighs> Where are they getting all of these babies from? Yep. Because it's just like a yep. okay. So they say they're all slaves. Eight thousand baby boys. I assume all of the children that they're killing, that they're you know exchanging one silver coin for, Must are all be the girls. girls. Must be that girls get, that get don't get picked up. But uh, if they have a new crop being trained every year, that's sixteen thousand babies and children. Well, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure that there's eight thousand per year. This is there's eight thousand in this group, sorry, and he sorry, mentions there. Yeah, my math is way off. Mm-hmm. It's still, but, uh, but you know, they start with a higher number and then have to weed out many. I mean, yeah, you know, the, I... the chunkos, as uh, Matt mentioned, and then the ones who chunkos, <laughs> <laughs> the ones who don't survive the rigorous training, the ones who don't survive killing their puppies because you know if they don't kill the puppy they kill the kid and feed the kid to the remaining dogs yeah there's eight thousand but remember based on their math there were really twenty four thousand. Oh, did they give a, a ratio of how many well, make it through one in three one in survived three. the training so oh i missed that okay. yeah they started with twenty four thousand from that age group it wasn't one year but yeah right so twenty four thousand murdered babes unless some of them didn't make it by that Point and work just get out. some yeah some it's, perspective as to the population of slavers bay like yeah. there's a lot there's a well lot. and yeah the the slave trade in yeah. general just throughout all of essos is staggering i also so i didn't so this chapter ugh, this chapter i i think this chapter is much better for new readers if you know about the unsullied this chapter's boring, right? <laughs> like, mm. there's not a whole lot going on. It's just you're learning about the Unsullied, and if you've read the books, you know all about the Unsullied. So I didn't take many notes for this chapter, but two of them I took are directly in line with what Brooke's talking about. One is the murdering of these babes. Like, why would anyone live here and get pregnant here? You got a really good shot of your baby being killed in the streets by an Unsullied being trained. <laughs> Move away. Uh, they're maybe they're yeah. slaves. I mean, he says they pay the they're coin sl- for the owner. They yeah. they make it they make it known that they're slaves. Okay. They yeah. All right. Yeah. So so okay. So maybe that point is invalid. But my other point, it doesn't sound to me like the sale of Unsullied is a profitable profitable business model. I mean, at one point in that chapter, they mentioned that some slaves are sold for less than the price of their sword. Well, do you know how much it costs, Matt? I know you do to raise to like feed and clothe and take care of a child 
<laughs> forget 24,000 of them for 15 years, and you're going to charge m- maybe the cost of their sword to buy them? It doesn't add up to me. I, this doesn't seem... I We got some fuzzy math. Yeah, and who's buying all these armies? Like, who's... Yeah. <laughs> who's waging uh, wars that we are not aware of? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's wars all over Essos. And what's crazy is, is it's all just... It's all just hired armies, right? Yeah. Which is really yeah. weird. Well, the Dothraki maybe being the exception, but or slaved armies. Yeah, it's like you. It's like you buy an army, and that's how you fight wars in Essos. It's really weird. Very different compared to Westeros, where you call your banners. This, you pull out the wallet, pull out the credit card, buy yourself some armies. It's just put. I'll put it in another perspective, real quick. Like they're they're counting how much money she can get for her boat and all the stuff on it, right? Basically, all the cloth and stuff that came from there. Yeah. There's no way a boat filled with shit is going to pay for raising 8,000 men from birth. It's just not enough money. It's not going to cover it. Sorry. She knows it. Yeah, she knows it. Yeah. Alright, we'll move on from my anger She's, at this chapter. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's Also, the cost of that, that concoction that they drink every day, that can't be cheap either. Yeah. Yeah. They must have some really high rolling clients who are paying not just the price of the sword for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they say it's more than the sword. They say the lower quality you can buy them for less than a right. sword. But yeah, I did like seeing um, some of Danny's. I just liked. I didn't like it per se, but I liked reading her dissonance and all this weirdness that she's feeling she's feeling a lot of confusion you know towards jorah um after the kiss and all of that stuff it really kind of this was a very humanizing chapter for her uh like i kind of said before it, it, i kind of feel like she had this perfect plan in mind for getting back to westeros she sees it clearly and it's on a high level from thirty thousand feet it's easy she got dragons just need to get an army go back take over westeros mission accomplished right um, because her cause is just, the seas will be parted for her almost. And now she's seeing that it's not that easy. Like moral sacrifices have to be made. Blood has to be spilt. Gut-wrenching compromises are going to have to be made. And I think the reason, so I was like, why she can't get over this Jorah thing. Why can't she get over this Jorah thing? And I think Jorah has come to personify all of that for her. Mm. Like before his role for her was so clear. Just like her mission. He was her friend, confidant. She completely trusted him. And he was, she knew exactly what he was. And then the kiss happened. And now it's all weird. Just like everything else. You know what I mean? He made it so weird. And so every time she sees him, she's reminded of the chaos that is her mission now. She's reminded of how muddy the waters are with everything. So I think the reason she's so frustrated at Jorah is he's come to personify all of this weirdness that's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that and he woke the dragon, right? In in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. I think she's also just horny. I mean... We talked about this a little bit the last in the last Danny chapter. Yeah. I mean, she's a woman that is used to getting getting some. And again, with the world explanation, I realize this is a different world. It's not our world. I'm not saying it's okay or whatever, but I'm just like, girl, relax, <laughs> relax, take Easy care, take say. care of it. You know, either get some Which help or did. don't. <laughs> but yeah. you know, like 
you just you don't need to feel guilty about this. And you know, she's fifteen; she doesn't know what she's doing. But you know, you just want to just want to give her a completely non creepy, non pervy hug and just be like, "It's going to be okay." Well, maybe she needs kind of a pervy hug yeah. <laughs> to just Step chill up. out. Though Jorah made well. Yeah, Jorah was out of line with the kiss for sure, yes. and his and his persistence in pursuing his queen, like she's his equal or something. But uh, I don't know. I, I think he did the right thing by by bringing them here. Like they did need this army, and his argument that you know this is an army that will not rape and loot and pillage exactly what. Danny doesn't want and wants to prevent is is a good argument. Yeah, I mean, like it, ta- tactics wise, this is a good move. I mean, if if yeah, I guess. I mean, you're fighting well, in a place where you need to buy an army to win a war. Buy the best army, and she knows that. Yeah, she's admits she's like, I gotta find a way to buy eight thousand soldiers. Yeah, but eight thousand isn't enough, right? We've, I mean, we've heard, we've heard, we've heard, we heard know, the numbers. We know that. High Garden had that. forty. Yeah, she doesn't know. Right. But High Garden had. Well, you think Jorah might know this kind of stuff or Arsten, but he might have uh, ideas. Yeah, they might both have ideas. But you know, we know that forty thousand is what High Garden has. Now mm-hmm. they're saying they'll flock to your banner as soon as you land. So maybe that's true. She's planning on getting help when she and lands, and she has the dragons. She's banking a lot on dragons. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. Back during Aegon's conquest, dragons made the difference. He started with no army, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Aegon. I mean, you uh, you send uh, dragons over Heron Hall, and all of a sudden, it's just another castle. Yeah. So, okay. Field of fire. Too. It's that it's just over quick. I, I talked about this a little bit on uh, when I when I guessed it on uh, Hype's Watch. It's just it's a. And a little bit, same thing with Rob, with beheading Karstark. It's, it's just a morally a line you can't cross. If you are so against slavery and treating humans this way, which I think she is, even if you can call it a smart battle decision or a smart financial decision, you can't, like, morally can you do it and still be the leader you want to be? Right. And that's where I'm talking about that I think a lot of her frustration comes from. Yeah. Is that she knows she's got a mission to accomplish, but she also knows that she's staunchly against slavery. So where does the compromise, where is the line okay to cross and stuff? Yeah, I'm with you. She she hasn't, she she has suffered a ton. Losing Drogo right. and the Red Waste. Yeah. And she's suffered a ton, but it, hasn't, so far. but it hasn't been compromised. It hasn't been due to mm-hmm. her choosing one thing or another. It's just been shitty things happening to her a little it's bit. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. She's been acted upon right. up to this point. Even in Karth, right? She was acted upon. This is her moment now to act. Yeah. And uh we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yep. Indubitably. Indubitably. <laughs> One more chapter. Scad, do you want to take away for Bran? Yes I do. Know. Five, six, seven, Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you new ways unexplored. And the summer's gonna come, you know it's gonna come, summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. A little bit of a snoozer, this one, too, huh? <laughs> sorry. sorry, man, this was not the best set of five chapters, in my opinion. Really? 
really like this one. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, all I right. love the story. Okay, go. All right, sorry. Team Bran! Go up and down the seamless, seemingly endless mountains of the Hill Clans. It's slow going, and it's not straight. It's got a lots, of, lots of doubling back and kind of going slightly at the wrong angle, not, not the direction they want to go. And while it's beautiful... The mountains provide less food for the party and fewer fish in the streams, less game to be found uh, than than it was back in the Wolfswood. Um, why not take the King's Road? Faster and more resources, says Bran. Nay, says Jojen, for the King's Road comes with prying eyes. And he wants to keep Bran's whereabouts secret. Keep it safe. They small talk about the people that live in these harsh lands as they travel, uh, but they never see them until a storm forces them to seek shelter. A man that Bran figures for a little, a little is just one of the many hill clans, uh, L-I-D-D-L-E, warms them with a fire and shares his food with them. The little longs for the days of a Stark and Winterfell and warns of squids uh, and boltons on the roads, asking questions after a boy and his wolf. They continue to travel. Uh, you know, various things occur. Bran tries to warg an eagle. We learn that Hoder's name is really Walder. The iron what's-their-nuts-is-born didn't perpetrate the killings at Winterfell. Um, and then we get a story. A good story. The Knight of the Laughing Tree. The story of a diminutive Cranagman, uh, that's somebody from where the reeds are from, or not, who paddled down this green fork to get the, to the Isle of Faces. The Isle of Faces is the island right in the middle of the God's Eye, which we've referenced twice already in our Sakatsu's Mappas. He stayed a season, this Granic man stayed a season on the Isle, but in the spring left to continue his exploits. He stumbled onto one of the greatest tourneys ever, the tourney at Harrenhal, and made his fast and made fast friends with some Starks after a she-wolf. Guys, it's Lyanna. Saves him from three squires that are beating him down. Then later he attends a feast with the Starks where he sees lots of stuff. Lots of stuff we, we'll talk about a little bit later, but most important to him... He sees the three squires that attacked him. His honor hurt, but he's cautious and he knows he can't win the fight against them. So he prays for guidance to the old gods. Well, the turn begins with much fanfare, but it's not until the second day when things really get going when a mystery knight appears. What the blazes is a mystery knight? Okay, a mystery knight is a concealed knight that won't give up his identity, but continues to fight. Um, the mystery knight, he's this this mystery knight is short, he's got mismatched armor, he rides right over to the three knights of the squires that beat the Kranigman, and he challenges them and beats them. After beating them and making them chastise their squires, he disappears, leaving only his shield hanging from a tree, never to be seen again. And like that, he was gone. Bran quibbles with some of the details in the story, but he likes it well enough. As he thinks on it, though, it appears that his main takeaway from this story is that if he goes to the Isle of Faces and prays hard enough, he could be a knight for a day. Bran, I think you missed the point. And that's the end of the chapter. You know, uh, I already referenced Princess Bride in this episode. <laughs> and during the story, I, I thought of little Fred Savage sitting on his bed in Princess yes. Bride. I have the same like, note. Is this a kissing book? Is this a kissing book? Uh-huh. <laughs> Where's the sports? Uh-huh. <laughs> Keep your shirt on. Let me read. Yeah. I have the same note. <laughs> Do you? No <laughs> kissing. <laughs> yep. Uh, Is this a kissing book? Yeah. That line. So we discussed before before the cast whether or not it would be spoilery 
to reveal the identities of the characters within the story, which is... At least as we understand them. Most likely true. Yep. Um, I think we all agree that that Gurm is being deliberately obvious on this one. Seems like it. Especially with with the wolf family, the she-wolf, the wild wolf, the shy wolf, and the pup. Oh, (laughs) so cute! The wild wolf being Brandon Stark, who uh, mostly we've heard from Catelyn's memories of him was like dashing and awesome, and, impetu- the shy, the and impetuous, and yeah, yeah, good looking, yeah, the, the good looking Stark. But he was he yeah. was a little reckless. Yeah, but you know that's that's super hot, so. right? Okay. Yeah, then the shy wolf who couldn't even ask a girl to dance that would be Eddard Stark he was the shy wolf Mm. yeah and then the pup I had to think about it for a second because I forgot that there was a fourth kid Benjamin Stark yep yeah Yeah, he was at one time not the respected black brother he became yep how soon we forget Mm -hmm. super cute and also we can assume most likely that the Cranaman was actually Howlin' Reed, who is uh, Jojen and Marin's uh, father. Yep. So he would have experienced it firsthand. Mm-hmm. And that gives us an interesting perspective on why Howland was so devoted to Eddard. Um, and, you know, and actually I take that back. We always considered it, well, at least I did, that Howland was loyal to Eddard. But maybe Howland was loyal to Lyanna for what she did for him um, and the Starks in general. So mm-hmm. it uh, sheds a little more light on that relationship between the Reeds and the Starks. Yeah, the only thing that the, the story itself points to for loyalty to Eddard it's, is, I think it mentions that the Shy Wolf invited him to share his tent. Yes, so it's the only sure. real thing that happens between the two of them specifically. The rest of it kind of seems like they're doing it as a group. Yeah, we get there's, there's more people in there. Do you want to go through the other people? Yeah, we got plenty. The three know. squires. What's that? Well, there's um, the the girl that dances with three people, right? That's a Sharadane. Uh huh. She of the purple eyes. She dances with a a white sword, which is probably her. Well, oh wait, I well, know this one. I think it's Barristan, isn't it? Uh, uh could be Barristan Jamie. had a crush on her. It could be Jamie. It could be. Um, gosh, it could have been uh, her brother. Dance with your brother sometimes, right? True. Could have been Oswell Went. Um, there were quite a few of the Kingsguard there. Uh huh. I feel like we get confirmation who that is. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. I mean, okay. this is where yeah. it gets. This is where it gets no, into territory. It's not really spoiling. Yeah. Uh, we're conjecting, conjecturing, I guess. But yeah, I, I'm. I'm going to say it was either her brother. It was old. It was old Arthur. Or it was, uh, or it was Barristan. Yeah, a good story. the 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 most interesting interesting thing about that story to me is that Jojen keeps being like, "Are you sure you don't know it? Why doesn't everyone know this story?" <laughs> Which is kind of funny, you know, story about your family. The main character is the Kranikman, right? So maybe Jojen assumes that everyone should know this story. When well, it's a story you get told because right. your dad's the main character. Here's a thought I had. What if Eddard never knew that Lyanna was the Knight of the Laughing Tree? And that's why he didn't tell the story. 
Well, I don't think we know that Liana was the Knight of the Laughing Tree. That's what I'm conjecturing. Is that a spoiler? No. Is it? No. It's just my um, guess. It's, 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 we've the never... setup was fairly obvious that it was it was the young lady who defended him. The only... I don't think that's Kinkin accepted is... as canon. I don't think it is either, but... Uh... It's pretty dang close. It's never By actually said... She's not the Knight of the Laughing Tree. It, it's never explicitly stated Lyanna Stark is the Knight of the Laughing Tree. I think she is. The only thing going against it is it said the Knight of the Laughing Tree spoke with a booming voice. I don't imagine Lyanna having a booming voice, but uh, I suppose she could have done something to make it sound booming or something. She had a little rolled up piece of cardboard in her helmet or something. <laughs> <laughs> she could have just done a manly impression. I think it, I think it was Lyanna Stark. Maybe I shouldn't just assume that everyone thinks that, but I think it is. Oh, I don't think the story says. Uh, I don't think the story points at anyone. That's why I say I, I think it is. Yeah. Because the story, like I said, it, that it's would be never the most ex- romantic. It's never explicitly stated that Lyanna Stark is the Knight of the Laughing Tree. Nowhere does it actually say that. I just think it is. Mm-hmm. Why are you so against this, Scott? I just feel like this is uh, dangerously close to spoiling territory, but um, I, I mean, uh, the, only, the only other person that, that seems likely from the story is the Kranigman himself, um, and it, it says in the story that he's you know not good on horses and not good at holding weapons and you know things like that. So it seems unlikely. But Bran notes in the chapter that. You know, if you pray hard enough, you can become a knight. And um, <laughs> it does, if, if if that's not what happened, it makes the whole praying for guidance thing a red herring in the story. Why mention it? Yep. So that's Which the oven. George the is, uh, definitely does his, uh, his red herrings. And on, on that note, Liana is noted already, this isn't a spoiler, as a very good writer. She is. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, yeah, short. Um, if this is if this is a spoiler, cut it out, please. But if it is Liana, and it isn't because we've had the Tower of Joy and everything, right? Aegon, or excuse me, King Aerys sends Rhaegar to try to go find out the identity of the Knight of the Laughing Tree. What if Rhaegar did find out, and it was Liana, and that was their first kind of encounter? Oh, mm. like their first little date. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> I mean, we know he he crowns her the Queen of Love and Beauty after this right. uh, tournament ends. He's and... impressed by her prowess and her fierce wolfness and all that ah, stuff. That would be so much better than just thinking she was hotter. Well, it's not mm-hmm. just that. I mean, they they mentioned the 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 point where he played a song and made the wolf girl cry. But, you know, they cry. they shared a connection across the room, kind of a thing. Um, Certainly, having them meet if she were the Knight of the Laughing Tree is, you know, it's another step. But um, mm-hmm. if if they met, he he reports back. Uh, I believe that that he couldn't find the Knight of the Laughing Tree. So that's what he says. Yeah. Yep. Which would be something you would say if you're trying to protect the identity of yes. that person. Yep. Just that, yeah, it's crackpot. Whatever. But I wouldn't call it crackpot. It's just, just it's thought. not certain. It's not. It's nope. not known. Yeah. Few things are in this series still. Not one, much one, more to talk about. One, <laughs> well, one more thing. Uh, just the 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 mountain clans. Yeah. Did, like he mentions once or twice that like he knows they're there. 
He's seen mm-hmm. as when he's been warging summer. He's he's noticed them, but they're not showing themselves. And then they run into trouble with the storm, and all of a sudden there's one there to help them. I kind of get the sense that they're being shepherded. Yep, they're being looked after. They're, uh, yeah. It implies that the loyalty of the mountain clans is fierce towards the Starks. Mm. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think to support <clears throat> your theory, the little that they do come across knows an awful lot about what's going on. Yeah. Oh like, yeah, he drops some major hints. The, yeah. Just like the watch and the gossip, he knows about the Game of Thrones, yeah. and mm-hmm. that makes him less of like a sheep herder and more of like possibly the little, yeah, like the right. the leader of that clan. Yep. Uh, especially mm-hmm. with his brooch and the fact that he has a a handkerchief in the clan colors. Yeah, uh, Torgan, I think, is the name of the the little. Mm-hmm. according to the wiki so yeah could it be their clan leader yeah like maybe you want to meet them for himself or something but i think you're right it was it was no coincidence that they found shelter in that cave while he was there yeah mm. I, I like that idea i'm always uh i don't know if we talk about it. I'm, I'm i've always been a big fan of the mountain clans it's kind of these rough like less civilized but solitary and very loyal people uh, i always like the, the mountain clans yep. yeah simple lives it also is noted in there uh just uh familiarly um brand's dad's mom's mom <laughs> right <laughs> like so eddard's grandmother great, right eddard's grandmother yeah so brand's <laughs> great grandmother was a flint one of these mountain clan mm-hmm. uh people so there's some there's some blood in there uh blow some blood relation Mm. Yep. Passed down. Could add to the loyalty for yep. sure. All right. Hey, yeah. So uh, I think this is a good segue into Davos After Dark. Yes. All right. All right. So thanks everybody for joining us. We're now going to move on to the spoilery part of the podcast. We call it Davos After Dark. Um, so uh, if you do not want to be spoiled, this is where you would sign off, and we will see you in two weeks for uh, Davos Three. John 3, Danny 3, Sansa 3, and Arya 5. All right, let's get spoiling. Davos after dark. Does the timing work out that Lyanna might have been knocked up at this tournament? I don't think so. Let's see. Because she was killed so young. She was 16, right? right? When she died. Childbirth, not killed, I guess. Well, yeah, killed by a kid. I, I studied this a while ago. I... It's been too long now. I don't. I don't think so, because what happens after the tournament is everyone goes their separate ways. There are months in between, months before Lyanna either is abducted or escapes with Rhaegar, depending on what you believe. Um, and then they're together at the Tower of Joy for a while as well. I, mm. We should look at the actual timeline, but I don't think I don't think it fits that she's that she's pregnant from this event. Oh no, right. Matt! Do you remember? I'm it's a long time. Yeah, uh, and I think they may have had many more rendezvous because Liana stayed in the south, I think, and didn't go back north. So at the Vale, or was it in River together. Run? River remember. Run, if I'm not mistaken, or it might have been Harrenhal, <clears throat> actually. I can't remember. I think I think uh, yeah, we should have studied up on this. I can't remember now. This is one of those moments where we back ourselves into a bit of a corner. Yeah. <laughs> when would we have known what she was doing? 
What? I'm... Hmm. I don't. You know what? It might be. It might be fan speculation stuff. I know I've read stuff online from people is. talking about this this time. Period. I don't think it gets covered in the books. No. Oh, let's see. There's she like died little in two eighty three. Tourney at Heron. She died in two eighty three. Tourney at Heron Hall was two eighty one. So no oh, way then. So it would have been some time. Yeah. 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 Mm. Time for their love to bloom. Yeah. That's nice. Or for Rhaegar's lust to fester. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on what you believe. You know he wasn't all good. Good sleuthing, Matt. Good sleuthing. Fast typing. Good job. Fast typing into the wiki. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um... There's one thing that in our pre-discussions we all wanted to cover in Davos After Dark. Mm. <laughs> that is uh, Jane's mom. <laughs> I was trolling so hard in my chapter summary. <laughs> and I, they're dream- <laughs> I, I couldn't even bring it up because I knew that I'd get, I'd get too, uh, too wry about it. Mm. <laughs> well, it's right. Yeah, Sybil Spicer. Uh, yeah, so she's not giving them, she's not giving them, uh, an agent to help them get pregnant. She's giving them Tansy T to miscarry babies. And mm-hmm. it's funny yeah. because, what was it, two chapters ago for Kat, she was talking about this very same thing with Lysa drinking this tea and, I don't know, just not putting it together. Yeah, yeah, that's on Kat for not recognizing there. Like, oh, what kind of posset is she giving you? Hmm, yeah. give me the ingredients. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell me more about this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe that's a very common thing for them to give too, and so there wouldn't be any reason for a second guess. But to the to the reader, it seems like why wouldn't you follow up on that? Yeah, this is an, more evidence of Cat being off her game. Yeah, uh, like we talked about, a lot on her mind, just. Off her game. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Uh, you can see Sabelle's reasoning behind it. Of course, we can't have Rob Stark having babies. Oh, then they're, um, they're completely tied to the Starks and be no yeah. hope of reconciliation. And Tywin's probably paying her off. Oh, yeah, they've already been oh, yeah. paid off. She's yeah. doing this because Tywin's already got a deal with her. And I think had one before they even arrived at the crag. Yep, they get, um, I know Rolf gets Castamere, um, which doesn't seem like much of a prize because it's still in ruins from what Tywin did to it last time and uh, things like that. So they are rewarded, though, for their yeah, for their deeds. For sure. Mm-hmm. Sad business. Yeah, I don't know that there's too much to talk about. Uh, I know we all pointed it out, but I think it's more just to rag on Sabelle for a little while. <laughs> Um, and 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 poor Jane, I don't think she knows what's going on. Oh no, I agree. And with <laughs> it's just a pawn in this whole thing. And yeah, that's what you get for being too sweet. It, and you get more into her personality in later books. Yeah, we talked about it in the last cast. How she wounded her daughter by trying to rip Rob's crown off of her head. <laughs> and even Jamie doesn't like her. Like Jamie Lannister doesn't like her. That tells you something yeah. jamie was was pretty hard on her well he he has other reasons for not liking her so cybel spicer mm-hmm. is the uh i don't know descendant 
of Maggie the Frog, right? Right. Yes. Who very, very much upset Cersei, right, as a child. So, hmm, does Cersei ever tell Jamie? Uh, I don't know. I think so. I don't know either. Hmm. Anyways, they share everything, right? Well, in Jamie's eyes, they do. Yeah. True. Oh yeah, that'll be changing soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good segue. Maybe if Brooke wants to go there. <laughs> about oh, about Jamie. Yeah, yeah, I just it's interesting on the reread how Grimm's really pounding it in how much Jamie loves and adores Cersei and thinks that she's like completely infallible. Yeah, like kind of building us up for their I don't know or her his, his abandonment of her. I guess, and making it that much more serious. Or her abandonment of yeah. her abandonment of him. Well, we always knew that she was just using Jamie and was only interested in him if he was her her male mirror, right? So the mm-hmm. second he be, he he wasn't, and it was all over. But he sincerely, really adored her, yeah. like obsessed with her i, I mean we've, we've made we've fun discussed. of him on yeah. like, yeah. we have her yeah, razzed him for this <laughs> so often so so yeah um but uh yeah him him uh turning away from her letter and mm-hmm. it's just the severity of that is so much more compounded by the fact that he brings her up every other sentence in these early POV chapters. Oh, shut up. Oh, Cersei's the worst. There, like, it's... Uh, there's a point in this chapter that we just read where he's telling Brienne to get in the, maid, the maiden pool. pool, And he's like, <laughs> I'll, rub, I'll rub your back, right? He's just fucking with her. I'll rub your back. And he's like, oh, yeah, I used to rub Cersei's back. Cersei, yeah. Like, yeah. his thoughts just, just like return yeah. there as like a Pavlovian I don't even know what like it's it's very very awkward and weird the the blind arrogance that he has with that comes with this obsession of him thinking well I'll just go ahead and marry her just yeah. like the dragons did and yeah. then we'll marry our kids together yeah. like that's not gonna compound and yeah. the problem results in like a, yeah. a grandkid with a tail yeah you think joffrey was bad <laughs> yeah. yeah creepy yeah. incest fest is not the answer yeah no but he's so like narrowly focused on her that he's like yeah that makes a lot of sense it's exactly what i'm gonna do when i get back I think yeah. that's also what helps him just get through all this, right? Mm. Is he's just got to find something to focus on and just stick with that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he's pretty obsessed. He does, but he, but, but it's, yeah, I'm kind of with you, Matt. It's not really, at this point, I don't think it's unhealthy obsession at this point. Um, you know, it's giving him hope and yep. yeah, what we saw in this chapter is that he's super hopeful and has, you know, an eye down the down the Duskendale Road to King's Landing and thinks he's going to get there, and is he's super he's super excited, right? He's close, and he can he can he can smell it or her or something. <laughs> Probably smells himself. Yeah, Thanks. maybe. But but then Gurm goes and and takes his hand away. I mean, it's it's just like him to do that, right? Here's a character full of hope, and he's going to do something amazing and. Get what he wants in life, and, um, no. Here you go. Take his hand. His arc is now changed away from what we were just telling you. Did you get any of it? Probably not. Nothing? 
No. no, this is just no. Gurm. This, this is just Gurm tur- turning it on his ear again. Here you have a character that has hope. He thinks he's going to get what he wants in life. He's going to make it happen. Going to be happy and get everything you know that he's hoping for. And then no, we're going to cut his fucking hand off. He's going to take a completely different character arc than what I had just promised you and what what the character wanted. And we're just going to flip it up upside down and give you someone that you can relate to and that will become Matt's favorite character. <laughs> Everyone's favorite character. What? No. Sorry. Oh, I forgot well, your, your Auntie Jamie. I don't like Jamie a whole lot. His arc is I, fun, but... And, well, I was thinking of my other favorite character. No one gets what they want in Westeros except for Bronn. <laughs> Bronn's happy where he is. Because he aimed low. Yeah, aim yeah. low. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's my entire life philosophy. Expect the worst and you'll always be pleasantly surprised. Yep. Everyone's bummed out in Westeros except Braun. Yeah. He's happy. He's good where he is. Yeah. I like that like about him. Movies. You know, I don't think he minds her. Yeah. She's simple and everything, but whatever. Yeah. It's all good. This is good. Um so, yeah. Ghost of Heart? Yeah, I was just gonna say, uh crazy how like precise and accurate oh my these, gosh, these early yes. predictions were, right? It makes you think that all these other weird, vague prophecies that we get from other prophets are going to oh, like what is it gonna be as obvious when we finally get the reveal? Because oh my yeah. god. Yeah, we've we've spent how much time dissecting these prophecies like House of the Undying and yep. you know, Melisandra's prophecies which are so vague and everything, and then you get Ghost of High Heart, which is just like <laughs> That's that person, that's that person, and that is that person. Easy. Done. Moving on. The faceless guy swinging on the bridge, though, is a little less obvious to me. Oh, yeah, but in hindsight, it lines up perfectly. Oh, my God. With the theory, right? With the theory. But I never never really understood that theory. Yeah, it's Balon, and supposedly you're you're on pay to faceless man to, to kill him, right? Yeah, and so man without a face waiting on a bridge. That's Mm -hmm. the faceless man waiting for Balon to come Mm -hmm. with a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. Um, Euron is out at sea still. Um, He's called Crozai, giving him commands. One day away, he arrives the next day. But is that where the theory comes from, or is there more support for that theory other than this vision? No, the support is that, yeah, that the timing is just... Is just too coincidental, like just enough that no one can accuse Jaron of actually orchestrating it, yeah. but mm-hmm. enough that it could have actually happened had he hired a faceless man, and also that um, Balon had you know been walking these bridges his entire life. Yeah, like, and just, now he's not going to fall. It was yeah. so unlikely that yep. he would have have fallen. Yeah, yeah, and makes of course sense. the, the theory just... adding on to that is the. That uh, Euron's dragon egg he didn't throw into the sea like he claims, but actually mm. used it to pay off the faceless man. Well, you're assuming he had one to begin with, which could have been a lie, but... Um, it's all assumption right yeah. now, right? But, <clears throat> I don't know, it just seemed like Euron's such a full-of-himself badass that he would have wanted to come take care of that himself. Well, I think... That's, the only thing, that's all I got. Is that, is that he, uh, yeah, is that... He wanted to not appear that way. Well, although, thinking about it, I don't know that the Iron Islanders would have cared. Like, did they have that much loyalty to Balon that they would have come down hard on Euron for killing him? I don't know. Yeah. Mm. They do have a lot of hang-ups about kinslaying, so... That's true. Yeah, it probably wouldn't have been good. But, 
Yeah, and then the then the cat prediction, the Stoneheart prediction, also just yeah. eerie. Roaring uh, river and a woman that was a fish. Yeah. Spooky Red language. Red tears on her cheeks. I imagine that's when she like clawed her face, right? Yeah. 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 I think she's actually described by like Brienne at some point. Mm-hmm. She looked like she was crying red, but uh, so super accurate. Um, I like to think uh, beyond all of these prophecies that Arya is going to remember this one day, and when she actually does return to Westeros, take advantage of High Heart. They, like mm. sleep in the weirwoods or come back to the ghost or something. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's gonna. I think we're gonna return because never have we had such accuracy, and I don't think Grim's gonna forget that. Yeah, I remember her next prophecies aren't quite as clear, but uh, her prophecies revolve more around Arya. Um, she scares her. Arya scares the ghost of High Heart mm-hmm. the next time they meet. Mm-hmm. And that's very telling. Uh, who is the ghost of High Heart? She's a dwarf. Someone thinks she. Some think she's a child of the forest, although she doesn't have all the physical features of a child of the forest. Maybe she's a combo, mm-hmm. a product of uh, men and children of the forest breeding. Cool. <laughs> Mm, hybrids. Mm. Mm-hmm. I drive one of those. <laughs> As do I. Nerds. Mm-hmm. Nerd alert. Uh, actually, no. Responsible humans. Well done. Well, yeah. It's financial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Is there anything else you guys wanted to uh, dive into? Um. Gosh, this is almost insignificant enough that now we don't need to bring it up. Bring it up. Do it. Yeah. <sighs> well, so I was thinking about this little thing, the Littles, and we know later on that the Mountain oh Clans remain loyal to the Starks. I was just reminded of that TV show, The Littles. Do you remember this? You were probably too young. Uh, mm. Neither of you? Oh, no. mm, The Littles. Some of our listeners know. Go ahead. So the Littles... If this is the little, um, he has information that Brandon Stark's alive. That might come in handy to Stannis or something. But uh, recently I was reminded of the whole Team John theory, so I've kind of had it on my mind a little bit. And of course, for readers that aren't, or listeners that aren't familiar with it, it's just an idea that we as a cast have kind of just batted around impromptu here on the podcast about who uh, John having this team of support around him, J.R. Mormont, Benjamin Stark, all these guys who we can't really explain some of the decisions they've made unless it's in the context of trying to help John achieve his destiny or something. Like we never really get a good explanation of why J.R. would join the Night's Watch and then give his however old sword to John uh, or why Benjamin would leave and suddenly join the Night's Watch. And one little thing I, I picked up while I was studying about the Littles Duncan Little, the oldest Little, the heir to the Littles, the heir to the Little, um, joined the Night's Watch. Hmm. Oh. And that's weird to me. Oh. Good, because good catch. You, you never notice the first the firstborn doesn't join the Watch. They're the heir, right? Hmm. Yeah. Do, do we know anything about him? No. Is he still around or is he, did he get killed? Or? Uh, we don't have any reports of his death. His name's Duncan Little. Um, and pretty much all that we know is he's uh, he's a ranger of the Night's Watch. 
Hmm. And the little Torgan or whatever his name is has uh, has other sons, so they move into line and in, in the air. But usually, it's the second, third, fourth yeah. sons that join the watch, not the uh, Torin little, not Torgan. That's odd. Um, yeah, and, so and I it, thought, oh, you know, man. maybe it's the Littles uh, participating in this whole Team John thing and getting a guy in there. Yeah, and you want to be careful, right? Because it's because it could it be like we have a theory and we find details to mold into it to make it look like that theory is tra- true, mm-hmm. or yep, we've always been conscientious of that. We try to be, or or is it? Kerm just screwed up and he accidentally yeah. made Duncan the oldest and told everyone that he was at the Night's Watch and then forgot that he was the oldest and shouldn't have put him there and it was too late and yeah. <laughs> you know like he's admitted to mistakes kind of like that in the past where it's yeah. just like oh i yeah i screwed that up and you know now hmm. we're keeping it and he's a minor enough character yeah that might just he might have just messed up and it doesn't even but matter. i like but it just, though i like it it's like enough i mean th- this whole case is built on you know a bunch of tiny little bricks right and that's right. another tiny little brick to add and i like it yeah all right that's all Good one. Okay. Okay. Um, you guys ready to say goodnight? Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, this is Brooke signing off saying, there's been an awakening. Danny <laughs> felt it. Eerie <laughs> did wake up. <laughs> and this is Matt signing off, reminding you that this is not a kissing book. And Scad with some classic Rickman. Loxley! I'm gonna cut your heart out with a spoon! Spot on, Scad. Nice. Why a spoon, sire? Because it's dull, you dull, twit. You It'll hurt more. Oh. <laughs> Alright, good night, you guys. Hey. Good night, everybody. Our listeners have no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) Shut up. Shut up. Listen. Scad, take us on to Catelyn. That was a very smooth transition. Well done, Brooke. Thanks. Yeah. We can cut it out. Uh, Yeah, it was uh, the John thing. I said that we were talking about whether the the TV show will spoil the books. I said, if John comes, if John comes back, that's going to be the fucking same. I think it's like exactly what I said. I don't know. It's it's exactly what I thought. Emotions were riding high, and somebody definitely called us out. The daisies, like like really pissed. Uh, no, I think they're a reader. No, not at all. They they just mentioned it. I I imagine if we have people that don't want to be spoiled, though, they might be pissed. (laughs) But I don't know how many people that is. I feel like most people watch the show anyway. She put she put the hashtag whoopsie doopsie. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she was too upset. She was just she was just calling us to the mat. I'm less impressed with her shrewdness now. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay, back to back to stuff we're keeping. Uh,